Good morning, everyone. We are going to get rolling here today. We are at Revelation chapter 12. So if you'd like to turn with me, Revelation chapter 12, and let me situate what's going on in the storyline again, because it is very easy to just focus on isolated chapters in Revelation as opposed to following the story flow. And the story flow is critical to everything going on. So at Revelation chapter 10, we entered a new like act. If you think of a play like having multiple acts in it, we entered a new act. And this new act parallels the act preceding it. And here's kind of how the parallel works so you can see it. In Revelation 4, John is brought up into heaven. He's given this vision of the throne room of God. And there in the throne room of God, we see that we have the scroll of the future and destiny and history, the scroll that has been ordained with all things that are going to happen written on and then insights into what's truly occurring in the world and what's going to occur in the world. And John asks who can open it and they say no one can open it and he weeps and weeps because no one can see the future. No one knows what's in in store. But then the elder says, who surrounded God's throne, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he can open the scroll. And the lion comes and takes the throne and he opens the scroll and seal after seal on the scroll are broken. And the entire storyline up to Revelation 10 is seeing the unfolding of only that which God can know and, and in Christ more specifically can know what is going to happen. Only God knows the future. Only God has written the hand of future events. And so only he is worthy to deal with the future, to change the future, to map the future, to chart the future, and certainly above all to reveal the future accurately to those who are struggling in a time of crisis. That took us up to chapter 10. Then at chapter 10, what we come across is the parallel. This time we don't see the Lion of the tribe of Judah taking the throne of God, but we do see this immense, incredible creature, this angel, so big that he has one foot planted in the sea and one foot planted in the earth, and he's towering over the earth. And if this is how big the angel is, he, he pales in comparison to the lamb. So the angel, in his might, almost becomes a window of just how grandiose and great the lamb is. And we see that this lion-roaring angel paralleling the lion of the tribe of Judah has a little scroll. Jesus has the big scroll. The angel has a little scroll. And what John is commanded to do is to eat the scroll. And this is a prophetic image. God gives his word. The scroll records the word of God. God gives his word and just like Ezekiel, John eats it, and the point of eating it is, of course, go with it. You're ingesting what God is saying, and it's sweet to the taste, but sour in the stomach. So it kind of sounds good at first, it looks good at first, it tastes good at first, but the implications of it working out are just kind of like, ooh, it gets you a little queasy here. And that's really what the rest of Revelation up until roughly chapter 17, 18, 19 is going to be about. We've seen the big scroll of human destiny. Now we're focusing in on the little scroll that God is calling John into. And so it has the effect of zooming in. 
We're no longer looking at the grand sweep just in its totality. We are looking at the specifics that John is going to find himself in, that the church is going to find themselves in, that the people of God in these seven churches are going to find themselves facing in their context. So the symbolism of the first century world ratchets up even more because you want to think about this as zooming in on their issue, their struggle, their perspective. Do you see how the, the literary device is working? Does that make sense? So when we come to Revelation 12, we are in little scroll utterances, little scroll perspectives, sweet and sour. Look for it in all of them. So Revelation 11, we saw the first instance that the church is going to be God's prophetic witness to the world. And as it is, it is going to stand in the great stream of prophets who have gone before it, and it is going to operate with the same power of God that God had orchestrated or implemented through all the prophets going all the way back. And Revelation 11 is just image upon image upon image showing that. So they are going to be sweet, right? God's prophetic witness to the world. But sour, they're going to be trampled on and left for dead in the streets to the joy and gloating of the world around them. That's the storyline of Revelation 11. Now we get into a new image, a new vision, because it's a collection of visions, each giving different perspectives on the same thing. What is the little scroll utterance of chapter 12? The dragon, and I don't think I need to unpack who the dragon is, he's been thrown down. And Christ has defeated him. That's sweet. But the sour is that he's really mad and there's a dragon out there trying to eat you. Okay? That's the perspective. Keep that in mind as we now read Revelation 12. And let's see where this vision takes us and do some imagery unpacking um, once we get through it. Here we go. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days and there was war in heaven Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back but he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven the great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the world astray he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him then I heard a loud voice in heaven say 
Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly to where she could be taken care of for a time, times, and a half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from the mouth of the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. This is one of my favorite chapters, actually. I love the imagery of this chapter. I love the cosmic war of this chapter. I love the imagery. And it's just like I, I, I could revel in this all day. So here's what's always helpful to do in Revelation. Because agreed, it's weird. It's crazy. It's sci-fi. It feels like a fantasy thing that you're watching. Again, that's what dreams are normally like. These are a series of visions. John is getting in the great vision tradition of the Bible. They are often weird and need to be interpreted. So let's just start by identifying the major players and recasting the plot, so to speak, so that we're not lost in the details and we know what's going on. Name the major players. Who are some of the major players you heard in this? Shout them out. Okay, so we got the lady. We got a woman, right? This woman is a major player. Who else? We got a dragon, who's the second major player. And the plot seems to be this war between this woman and this dragon. Okay, what else? Who are the other major players? Okay, we got the child. The woman gives birth to this child who rules with an iron scepter. He seems to be pretty central to the story. And then we have all these angels and demons. Some are named like Michael. Others are just left more generic. So we see that in this war between heaven and the dragon, between the woman, if you will, um, who's allied with heaven, and the dragon, there's all these angels involved, and this, this child, this male child, is kind of center to this war. Yeah, anything else in there? Angels. Yeah, the angels. The earth, itself, the earth is actually a character, right? Not just as a location, but the earth actually provides assistance to the offspring of the woman that as the dragon is spewing water out of its, its mouth, the earth chooses to open its own mouth to prevent the dragon's work. So that's kind of weird and cool and interesting. These are the major moves, the major players, the major plot line. So let's dig in and figure out what's going on. I guess we should, maybe in 30 to 60 seconds, define the plot line. There's an amazing, glorious, uh, exalted woman. 
and the woman is about to give birth, and she is in the pangs of child labor. And this great and enormous dragon with all these heads and all these horns wants to devour the child, and he's kind of like poised right there. You know, it's not dad with the video camera. It's the dragon with the big open mouth, right? By the way, did any wives, did like any of your husbands like do the video camera while you were in birth? Because that's even worse than a dragon in my opinion. That's creepy. But moving on. This dragon wants to devour her child, but the, the child is spared. And at the center of the story, a lot of attention is given to this child. He is specifically called a male child, right? And he will rule the nations with an iron scepter, and he's snatched up to God, and the woman is kept safe in the desert. This precipitates a war between the angels and these fallen angels or angels allied with the dragon, and the dragon is not strong enough to win the war, and he is hurled down from heaven. And there's great rejoicing in heaven over this, but all kind of lament for the earth because he's lost his place in heaven, but now the dragon is on earth and enraged, and because he can't get the child, fine, I'm going to get the rest of the woman's offspring and the earth is pr providing some help and assistance in this, but he's, he's waging war in his fury because he, he got cast down. He can't win. He can't destroy who he wants to destroy, the woman or the child. So he's going after the offspring. That's the basic plot line. And it ends with us seeing the dragon standing on the shore of the sea, which will then set up the plot line of what follows. So, some basic questions, right? A, what the heck is going on? We know that Revelation is very symbolic, and so it would probably be odd to think too literalistically about any of these characters. They probably represent something. So who does the woman represent? Who is the male child? Who are the offspring? Who is the dragon? Well, that's an easy one. It's self-identified right? By knowing them, maybe follow-up questions. When is this taking place? Is, is this something that's happened? Is this something that's going to occur? And by knowing the when, how does that help us understand the what? These are some of the basic questions, right? Agreed? To kind of make sense of what's going on. Yeah, Mike, did you want me to swing in? Well, okay, let's jump into some characters, and here's where I think here's where I think the best place to start is. Let's start with the male child, and let's let everything radiate out of that center point and that, that hymn that's kind of written here about it, and let's see if we can identify the male child and start building out from that nucleus and, and radiating from that point. My bet is, as you were hearing the story, you were intuitively kind of running to certain places in your mind with what's going on. So identify the male child for me. Who do you think the male child is? Christ. 
Christ. And I think you're pretty safe in that. I think that's a, a pretty good guess. There's all this messianic imagery of ruling with the iron scepter. It comes right out of chapter 2 of the Psalms, where the Messiah is talking about as the Son of God who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And so the imagery is layered there. We see that this male child is brought up to God. There's a certain kind of idea that if you know your, your Christian theology and Bible stories, that Christ after he raised from the dead 40 days later, ascended into heaven, right? And his ascension into heaven wasn't just like, oh, that's cool, there he goes. It was literally him ascending to take the throne of heaven. Um, ascension is way underplayed in the Christian church today, but it's way significant for New Testament theology because the crucifixion and resurrection is Christ winning the war, but the ascension is Christ taking his throne at the right hand of God. And when the male child is brought up and takes the throne at the right hand of God, who is cast out? Satan, right? And Revelation helps us here. It identifies who this dragon is. We know that this dragon is Satan, which may lead you to ask, wait a minute, Satan was in heaven before, like Christ ascended to heaven? And the short answer is, yeah, he sure was. And if you don't want to take my word for it, read Job chapter 1, where the Satan would come and appear before the divine council in the throne room of God and um, basically try to accuse um, God's people and entice or tempt God to uh, mess with them, you know, and uh, judge them and do things like that. So now that Christ has taken the throne, no more cast out of heaven and all those who are heaven rejoice because you just don't want a roommate like that, right? He doesn't want to leave heaven. Who would want to leave heaven? He fights, he loses, but woe to the earth because now he is cast down among you and welcome to the joy of what we get to experience, right? And everyone in heaven is like... Glad it's their problem. No, they're not doing that, but that kind of works. That, that's kind of what's going on, right? Would you agree that seems like the natural flow? Now, there's a couple of key players that get significant to, I think, the message John is trying to bring to these churches and to us. And it revolves around the identification of the woman, which goes hand in hand with the offspring. Now, if the male child is in fact Christ, who would you naturally assume that the woman is? Mary. Who gave birth to Jesus? Mary gave birth to Jesus. I got some Israel coming from stage right in the room. Huh, maybe it's Israel. Now, in Roman Catholic theology, They'll actually make a lot of Revelation 12 for their, what I'll call Mariology, and, 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 and venerating Mary with, with glory. And, and in my opinion, I think Protestants have thrown the baby out with the bathwater a little too much when it comes to Mary. And while I, I think the Catholics have gotten too extreme over here, I think the Protestants have gotten too extreme over here. To quote Luke chapter 1, um, Blessed are you among all women. You got to be the mother of God. That, that's pretty heavy hitting. That's pretty cool. God selected this woman. And that, that, that deserves, I think, a lot of respect and honor. 
if you will. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Mary rocks, right? We can all assume Mary rocks, right? Um, and I, I think at one level you can go with that kind of imagery, but remember, Revelation is always multi-layered, and we've seen this in a lot of the images so far. And what I'd like to do is suggest that the woman represents something more than just Mary. That Mary is in fact a part of the woman or the offspring of the woman or playing double duty, but shouldn't be identified unilaterally as the woman. And here's a few textual reasons why, and then I'll give you a couple of cultural reasons why. Let's go textual first. The dragon is making war against the woman's offspring. If that offspring is limited in Catholic theology to just Jesus because Mary was perpetual virgin, it ceases to make sense. If in Protestant theology, Mary went on to have a healthy sexual relationship with Joseph post-Jesus' birth and had four brothers as Mark 6 will lay it out and sisters as well. Let's say Mary had 10 kids. Let's just go with that. I don't know, but let's just kind of round it out. Well, okay, I mean, tough rocks for the kids that this dragon's trying to eat them too, but, but, but it's kind of like limited in scope. Would you agree? Doesn't the offspring feel larger than the literal offspring of Mary? So that should be a cue that something more is going on here. Also, just the way that the woman is kind of cast with some of the language, it seems to harken back to like even Eve in some aspects, but more significantly, and you guys mentioned it already, Israel. I encourage you to think of the woman as Israel. Now let me show you something cultural, and this is kind of cool. The, the, the primary communication medium in ancient Roman world was coins. It's not really unlike what we do today. Take dollar bills, take savings bonds, take coins, and we stamp them with the images and icons of things that we want to remember, that we think are important, that we strike as values for our society. Anything from a symbol like an eagle that's meant to invoke right, kind of a national spirit and pride, to something like um, a, a person's face, like Abraham Lincoln or George Washington, to remember not only who they were, but what they did and why that's important. Two phrases, like e pluribus unum, um, that, that, that defines a, a national value. Or, um, strangely, in God we trust, which I don't know if that defines a national value anymore, but there's a hold on in it, right, right? Things like that, that's what gets communicated through money. Well, how do you communicate in the ancient world, especially when paper's expensive, you can't reproduce artwork, everyone doesn't have a lithograph hanging in their house, and um, you don't have like radio, TV, social media. Well, they would do it predominantly through like coins. Um, you would mint coins in honor of certain heroes, events, symbols, occurrences. And I want to show you some coins that were minted um, shortly before this time in Revelation is taking place. And they're going to be in Latin, but you're going to be able to figure it out, and it's kind of cool, and I think it pertains here. So 
Here is the front and the back. And let's see if we can kind of make this out. Now, here's the front, all right? And this is the bust of, can you read that right there? Caesar, you see that? C-A-E, S, and it's like, I know it looks like a V. Vespasian, Vespasian. you see that? C's, abbreviated, because they abbreviated too back then. C's Vespasian. Who is Caesar Vespasian? Who here knows their Roman history? He is a Caesar in the first century. Who can give me 10 seconds on Caesar Vespasian, yeah? Uh, Caesar, after uh, the three Caesars, uh, after uh, Nero's suicide, one after the other after the other took over in a civil war, and it was Vespasian that led the Roman War. And when he became Caesar, he sent his son Titus to finish the job that he started before that. You got it. Everyone hear that? So there was the time in Roman history, right after Nero the Mad Job committed suicide. And, and by the way, that is gonna, that's gonna fit, Nero was going to factor in predominantly in Revelation 13, 14, and following. And right after his suicide and death, there was what was called a four-year period, I believe, if I'm remembering, uh, 66 to 78, it was at 18 months, it was even shorter, called basically the year or the era of the four Caesars. And it was like a, a time of chaos in Rome, a time of civil war in Rome, and there were four Caesars in rapid succession who took the throne, Vespasian coming out on top. Now, Vespasian started as a general, and I just mentioned a period of time, 66 to 70 AD, and what is significant about that period of time from Jewish history, you know? It's the destruction of the Second Temple. And who was the Roman general that led the invasion of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple? Vespasian. All right? Now, in the cycle of the four Caesars, Vespasian went to Rome and left the siege, as you were saying, half done, and his son Titus finished it up. And we're going to get into this later because it's so cool. There's all these, these Nero bombs that are going to get dropped in Revelation. And not only that, stories about Vespasian and Titus and in the battles, how they suffered near fatal head wounds, but they healed. And that's going to kind of factor in. Just hold that imagery for something to come. But what's significant about Caesar Vespasian, besides being an emperor, besides coming out of a time of chaos in Rome, besides... All of that is that he led the siege that led to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem that Jesus predicted. Now, let's look at the back. Now, let's just, let's just try to figure out what's going on in the picture here. Describe this picture to me. What do you see? What, is that, what does that invoke? You, you know, just let, let's try to figure it out. Okay, so we got a plant. Marilyn's going like some kind of plant. Looks kind of like a palm tree, doesn't it? And maybe those are palms in the tree. Maybe it's something else. But we got a palm tree. We got two dudes. Or we got two people. What's that? He's holding his hand up, and here he's holding. Is it a scroll? Is it a mace? Is it a scepter? He's holding something. See that right there? Is that a flog? Is that a whip? Not really sure. Then we got someone here. Now let's just try to understand the relationship between these two people. Do, do they look like equals? No. no. W what does it look more like? He's really nervous. He looks like he's got his foot, his left 
Looks like he's stepping on something, but would you say that this figure seems to be in a place of dominance and this person seems to be in a place of of submission, maybe servitude, maybe slavery, but certainly some kind of defeat, oppression, um, brokenness, something like that. I mean, I, 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 I don't want to be guilty of planting ideas. Would you agree with me? Someone is victorious against someone else. And this person seems to be like lamenting under a palm tree, right? Now let's go, when they would do runs back then, just like money today, you do different, you do different runs, you know, same image but different mints or, or however you put it. So let me show you some of the related mints to this. I started with this one because, I mean, let's face it, we don't have the molds. So people dig these coins up and this was just clear on the front head. Now let's get some clarity on the back side. Huh, this one, you can't see this clearly, but you still have IMP, Imperial Caesar, you know, Vespasian. You kind of see it in there, Imperator, Caesar, Vespasian. We got the same rough image going on, but now we've got some words. Can you make that out? I, V, right? Is what it looks like, D-E-A, Eudea. Can you kind of see that or hear that in there? What do you think Eudea is? Judea. Judea. So what is Capta, right? Can I see that? Yeah. Here's maybe a clearer one. You know, you could see Eudea really clear under there. And oh, look, there's the Roman eagle, eagle, right? Flying overhead. What is this coin? trying to show us the captivity of Judea by who Vespasian that's why he's on the coin here's our hero here's the like like we don't think of that as a hero but if you're a Roman yeah man he's the guy that overthrew the Judeans he's the guy that captured the Jerusalem temple by the way do you know how the Colosseum in Rome was built by the money looted from the Jerusalem temple so when you go to the Colosseum in Rome today, that is in large part funded back then by the spoils of capture from Vespasian's war because it was wealthy. I mean, Herod went like insane with the opulence in that. So if you're Roman, hey man, we got a new stadium in our town, right? And we didn't have to pay for it out of our tax money. I mean, we've expanded the empire. We've, we, we, we've broadened our territory. We have shown how strong and how mighty we are. They did all the stuff that good empires throughout history have always done. You flex your might and you benefit from those that you oppress. Rock on. It's a better life for us. You don't really think about being at the expense of them. Yeah. yeah the gold was actually even more than that. It cut the money, the gold's uh, value in half. Did it really? That's craziness. So if you didn't hear, I guess uh, the capture of the gold was so great that it actually um, devalued gold by half. It cut the cold value in half because, of course, it's all supply-demand stuff. So I'm mean, just the sheer amount of wealth. Because remember, temples were not just religious sites. They were also banks, and they, they function as economic institutions as well in the ancient world. That's not just true of the Jerusalem temple. But where I want to bring you in this is into some of the imagery that might be missed by us. 
palm has always been, or, or in this time, for the, for, for the 150 years before this, up to this date, for a couple hundred years preceding Revelation, the palm was the American flag of Judea. So, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and people cut palm fronds and wave them, that is not just getting a, comp- a convenient flag and doing a fun third grade art project. That is them taking their national symbol and waving it. And how do you know that? You know it from all the coins that Jerusalem minted in that era as well. So when you see palms, you've got to think very nationalistic on this. And so you see, and I'm just going to argue and just let's go with it, a woman in defeat under her symbol. And on some of these, the people who study this kind of stuff will say that these are kind of like not just coconuts, but like spoils of war, the weapons of war that they hang up on the tree. I don't know. I don't see it, but people study this stuff a lot more than I do. I'm just going to extend them the courtesy of taking their word. The imagery is a woman who represents conquered Israel. And keep in mind that this coin has in circulation at the time of Revelation, okay? Judea personified here as a defeated woman under the hand of Rome, under the hand of Vespasian. What does the vision in Revelation do? It flips it on its head. Now we see a woman, but she's clothed with the sun, and she stands upon the moon, and she has 12 stars that are... That are What is God showing John? My people are not a defeated, oppressed people. No, they are, but they're really not. Let me show you what's behind the veil. No, my people, those whom I have chosen, are radiant. They are clothed with the sun. And at the end of the day, the dragon can't devour her. A place is prepared for her in the desert where she's taken care of for 1,260 days or a time's time and a half a time. We know it's all the same imagery, right? And it's imagery that's drawing from Daniel. It's a time of persecution in Daniel. I can get into why three and a half is significant there. But it's a time of persecution in Daniel that becomes an image Revelation uses to describe the persecution that the church faces in this era today. Are you with me? So you're living what Daniel lived, but in that, they might trample the outer courts, as Revelation 11 said. The Gentiles might trample you down. They might leave your bodies dead in the street. The dragon is trying to eat you, but my church, my people, Israel, however you want to use it, and I use that all synonymously, no, clothed with the sun. And that gave birth to Christ. Christ is of Israel, the male child, the messianic promise, came out of Israel, so to speak. And you are the offspring of Israel, too. And you might go, but I'm not a Jew. And I'll go, I don't care. Because being a Jew has nothing to do with it. You are Israel according to the New Testament. And so the image being given is that the dragon has not defeated the Messiah. 
the dragon fundamentally cannot devour the church. The church will stand victorious no matter what the world and the empires and the dragons and the beasts throw at it. But make no mistake, it is still trying to devour you. And woe to the earth and its inhabitants because the dragon is enraged. And so this is the message John brings. Sweet, but sour. You kind of with me on this? You, you follow what's going on here? And doesn't it now suddenly become like, oh my gosh, this is like the coolest image of what we are facing and what is going on and what the believers of God have always found themselves embroiled in from 90 AD to the present and the hopes and insights God gives alongside of it to help us endure when dragons are on the hunt. Yeah. Yeah. It's a continued story that where it kind of, in a good way, all kind of melts together into one continuous story, one continuous line of people. It doesn't make the distinction of those Jews and us. It's just us. Yeah, and this is total what New Testament theology is all about. I think of Galatians chapter 3, where he says, You are all sons of Abraham. Well, you're not, biologically but you've been adopted, or as Paul will say in Romans 12, been grafted in, so to speak. He uses image upon image upon image throughout his letters, Ephesians 2, and, and so forth and so on, that, yeah, it's not them and us, it's just the people of God. If you want the best working definition for Israel, people of God, period. I mean, that's the lowest common denominator kind of thing. That's why you are Israel, and that's why you were taught this song if you grew up in church at four years old. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and I have one of them, and so are you, so let's all praise the Lord. And it's a bunch of Germans, Italians, Irish, and Chinese kids singing it. Y you know? Because you are. That's what's going on here. And Revelation 12 now sets the stage for the entire plot line to come out of it. You got to get 12 right to get 13, 14, and 15 right, because what you're going to see is that the dragon's tactic is to start raising these beasts out of the earth to go and do his work of seeking to destroy and devour the woman's offspring. But you got to get the imagery right to there to get here. You remember that dream, Jacob Joseph? Yeah. Yeah. You got it. You got it. My dad is literally and mom. Yeah. 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 And you can go back, and I think that's uh, Genesis 40 something. I don't know. You'll find it in there. Um, you know, you could look at Isaiah, pick up on that imagery too, where um, Isaiah 26, um, like specifically like around verse 17, and you got to read it in the Septuagint version to get, get it as sharp as possible, which means read your footnote. But it talks about Israel as a woman in labor. And what she is giving birth to is nothing but wind. And it's a symbol of Israel in captivity and exile agonizing 
and unable to produce their own future or salvation, if you will. So God has to come and intervene because she can't bear it, meaning like give birth to it on her own. So yeah, symbol upon symbol, layer upon layer, illusion upon illusion, welcome to Revelation. But again, there's always 20 more to be discovered. If you know what's going on, the details just color it in as you go. Anyway, we're out of time, so we're going to pick up with Rev 13 next week. God bless. Thanks for coming.